This is Future of Work Pioneers with your host, Dr. Harpreet Singh at Harvard University. In this show, we speak with pioneers and thought leaders about workforce transformation, AI, and leadership in this exciting space. Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Matt Mullenweg, the founding developer of WordPress, the open source software used by 36% of the web. In 2005, he founded Automatic, the company behind WordPress.com, WooCommerce, and many other products. Matt has unique insights into running distributed teams. Automatic is entirely distributed with almost 1,200 employees working in 75 countries. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. So, Matt, let's begin with the origin story of Automatic and WordPress. Tell us about the history, what inspired you, and how you found such tremendous success. Sure. Um, I guess it goes back to blogging. So I, you know, 2001, 2002, I was graduating high school, starting college, and I just love blogs. I love reading them. I thought I would write one. Uh, in 2003, I ended up co-founding a blogging software called WordPress uh, with a gentleman named Mike Little over in the United Kingdom. And um, the idea was to take what was, you kind of had to be pretty technical to create a blog at that time and just make it accessible to a wider audience. You know, we wanted to make it so, I think we have this fundamental assumption still to this day that like the more voices out there, the better, you know, and it's so powerful for people to be able to share their stories. Um, that WordPress kind of took off and um, it expanded to uh, encompass more than just blogging. So you could build an entire website with it. Uh, I started a company called two years later called Automatic, basically to try to take WordPress and make it accessible to an even wider audience. So not just like uh, sort of amateur developers, but what if we could just make it so you could click a few buttons and use WordPress. And that became the product we call WordPress.com. Then over the years, we've created a number of add-on services for WordPress, uh, the most notable of which is called WooCommerce, which transforms it actually into an e-commerce store, which is now selling over $20 billion a year worth of goods are being sold through WooCommerce. So it's, um, it's actually a major competitor to Shopify and doing very well. And um, yeah, since we came out of an open source project and WordPress is still open source, we've always collaborated all over the world with you know, people developing the software together. So, you know, an average release of WordPress has five or 600 collaborators that contribute to it. Fewer than 10% work for my company Automatic. So it's really always been a community project. And so when building the company Automatic and hiring people, I was like, well, you want to hire the best people out there. I, I hired people from all around the world. And that's how we ended up, I guess, with folks in 75 countries. Remote work is becoming, uh, you know, mainstream, uh, as we know, uh, is because of uh, the pandemic largely. Uh, and uh, I noticed that you like to use the word distributed work rather mm. than remote work. So tell us what is the difference? You know, uh, words create reality, and I'm a big believer in the power of words. And when you think of the word remote, it implies that you're away from something, right? You're far away. Um, and when you're working together, no one wants to be remote. <laughs> I don't want to be remote for my colleagues. And so when we were looking for a word that, that sort of could capture the fact that you're maybe geographically apart, but you want to actually be really tightly coupled and working closely together, we came up with distributed and inspired a bit by 
you know, I've kind of an engineering background. So distributed systems are ones that are typically designed in a way that are more resilient. So that if, like, if you imagine how modern day networking works, like if any one node goes down, the network can route around that. And that's why something like the internet is so resilient, even though every single day there's thousands of parts of the internet going down, um, we're just able to route around that. So I love the idea and I believe we've created a company where, um, you know, any single node uh, is equally connected to all the other nodes. And if for whatever reason, um, a node goes down, which could be someone taking a holiday, it could be a sick day, it could be, you know, a paternity leave or maternity leave. Like there's a million reasons why, why people uh, move in and out of work on even on a daily basis. Um, the entire organism can still function at a very high level. And, and would you say that um, the blockchain with decentralization is taking this a step further even? Decentralized is also another really good word for it. Um, I think that, you know, we talk about these terms distributed and decentralization in computer science often in terms of disaster recovery or failure recovery. And we've seen a worldwide failure right now, right? I used to joke like, hey, if a meteor hit Dallas, you know, we have four other data centers that would take over, you know, clusters of servers serving WordPress.com. Um, but we've, we've experienced right now where the entire world is impacted at the same time by a really terrible um, challenge. Uh, yet, those who are able to work online are still able to be productive and contribute back to the economy and support their local communities through that economic activity. So, I mean, it's, it's not obviously not a panacea or solving anything, but I think it is contributing to making things less bad than they would have been. The fact that it turns out not just our business, but many businesses were able to operate um, largely online. So when we're talking about advantages of working from home, terms like autonomy and agency are often used from a philosophical perspective. How do you approach thinking about issues regarding autonomy and agency, especially uh, how they relate to work both as an individual and from a collective perspective? Yeah, to some extent, some of these concepts are orthogonal, right? Like you can have everyone working from home and still be the worst micromanager ever. <laughs> and in fact, there's some there's some freelancing platforms like um, uh, like uh, what's it called? Uh, not Odesk or Elance. They merged and became something Upwork, else. Yeah. Upwork, yeah. I don't know if they do this, but some of these platforms will actually like, you know, have the webcam on, take pictures of the person's screen. Like they can be like far more intrusive than even an office would. Um, there's another way to do it too, <laughs> which I think works well, whether you're in an office or not, which is, um, you know, first hire the best people you can and manage our poor performers. Um, I think Reed Hoffman or Patty McCord would call this maintain a high talent density. You know, they both have really excellent recent books about Netflix, one called Powerful and one called the No Rules Rules. Um, so increase that talent density. Um, give people meaningful work and then kind of get out of their way, <laughs> allow them to, to succeed in that work, support them, you know, however possible, get them the training, the support, the, the hardware, the software, whatever they need. Um, but if you have smart, motivated people working in autonomous fashion, those teams will outrun uh, more top-down managed teams or more sort of micromanaged teams every day of the week. So when we think about distributed work, uh, you obviously need a lot of uh, tools, you need different kinds of tools to, to manage such teams. Um, 
what what are the kind of tools you've been using to manage people in 75 countries? And uh, are there any that really stand out that you would uh, recommend to others? Yeah, first and foremost, I need to thank the internet. <laughs> I can't do anything without it. And, and you know, subtext of that is broadband. You know, now on cell phones, you can get 50, 60, 70 megabits connections all over the world, you know, in a lot of places. And uh, broadband is becoming more mainstream, more ubiquitous, just everywhere. And that, that's huge because we can do a call like this mm-hmm. with almost no latency, great high-def video. Like, I mean, that's, that's incredible. <laughs> we, and we forget, we take these things for granted. It is kind of like, a, like science fiction. Um, I was hiking Machu Picchu last year. And I actually didn't have reception for a lot of it. But when I got to the top, I forget the name of the mountain right next to it. It's this big, bigger hike. And um, I was able to video call my mom. And it just, like, I actually teared up because my mom's always wanted to visit there. She's less mobile these days. So sort of hike like that wouldn't be possible. But I was able to virtually, like, I think I did a Google Duo call to her um, Google Home device that she had by her chair. And I was able to, like, show her the view and everything. And, like, I'm tearing up just thinking about it. Like that was, I was like, wow, what have we created? And I took a moment to like, think of all the levels of technology that were happening there. The microchips in the phone, the cameras, to think of the incredible supply chain that like, it took to manufacture that thing. You know, I know you don't know the Adam Smith um, example of like, in his day, he was like, no single person can make a pencil, <laughs> right? The supply chain to make a pencil. And now apply that to like smartphones. I apologize, I'm going way, way off. <laughs> Let me get to, come back to automatic the tools we use. So people have ubiquitous broadband. Um, we use an internal blogging system called P2, which you can sign up for at wordpress.com slash P2. It's essentially private blogging. So instead of email, we have almost no email in the company. I get probably fewer than five emails a quarter from my colleagues, <laughs> like really almost none. And uh, we just have this internal transparent blogging system. Uh, we use Slack. We use Zoom. Um, I really like Zoom. Sometimes I think Slack can be a net negative for productivity. So we've been thinking about ways to evolve our usage of, of that real-time chat. And um, a lot of other things we just kind of build ourselves or all those tools I mentioned have a ton of things to integrate with them. So one thing, the pandemic we've been doing more is um, there's a cool bot for Slack called Donut. Um, maybe it's a company, I don't even know. <laughs> but all it does is it randomly pairs two people and you hang out and so i'm in a number of rooms like so i get randomly paired every other week with like people who sign up to be randomly paired (laughs) and it's really nice because we're just having social conversations so trying to create that trust and create those bonds um that might normally happen in non-pandemic times when we get together a few times a year uh but right now we kind of need to figure out how to recreate artificially online Mm -hmm. and how do you think about organizational structure and hierarchy in relation to distributed companies? Uh, are companies forced to adapt more of a flat structure when you're distributed or you know, you think uh, you can still have some hierarchy? I think it's, um, you can have whatever you know, org chart you like. So Automatics actually ended up with a fairly standard um, org chart, you know? <laughs> the sort of lead to the contributor ratio is pretty normal. It's a little bit higher maybe on the support side of things, like our support folks, a little lower for like design or engineering or product. Um, the place where we're a little unusual and what distributed can't allow is because we're so transparent internally and um, 
and so much of the the sort of catching up happens asynchronously. You have the information sharing, like, hey, what did you do this week? What were your challenges? All that can happen asynchronously. Um, you can choose to be a little flatter. So leads who are able to ingest lots of information, synthesize it, and communicate really well in an asynchronous manner. You know, if a best practice in an in-person company is maybe eight people that <laughs> you can manage, I think in distribute you could probably do like 14, 15 mm -hmm. without really any loss of managerial output or productivity. Um, there's even times like I, I've had it as high as like 20 something direct reports at various points, but that wasn't on purpose. I was filling in for, for a lead who was out, but, um, but it wasn't untenable, you know? Yeah. So um, when it comes to distributor teams, um, how do you build a culture that would support that? So, so you, you started discussing, you know, that this, app you're using, pairing people, uh, get to know one another. So what, what other things people should be thinking about uh, when it comes to building a strong culture? The good news is the culture is going to happen, right? It's like the culture is happening anytime, you know, two or more people are talking to each other in your company. And so we think a lot about how we create the culture that we want, right, around, you know, clear communication, Writing is very important to us, right? Like we want clear writing as a sign of clear thinking. Um, we have a saying internally called assume positive intent, right? When we're more asynchronous communication, it's sometimes easy to read things the wrong way. Especially if you're having a bad day, you might read the same message like in a way that seems more aggressive or more accusatory. And so we just try to remind people like, hey, when you're communicating with others, you probably don't mean that. <laughs> they probably didn't mean that either. They didn't wake up and said, ah, you know, I'm going to make Matt feel really terrible today. <laughs> They're probably just like, no, what's the status on that thing, Majig? So we have these things we developed. Um, and the stuff we do to emphasize it, I think, is the same that we do if we were in person. You know, we try to model it <laughs> from leadership, especially because people really look at what you do, not what you say. Um, we have a creed. If you go to automatic.com slash creed, you'll see kind of a a statement of values that's really, really important to us. And uh, we talk about it, you know, when it goes well, when it goes poorly. If we, it's really hard, but if, if let's say someone went against our culture and how they spent company money, you know, and that became something we let someone go for. It's important, it's difficult because you wanna respect people's privacy and everything like that, but you also need to talk about like what happened, what went wrong there. What could we have done differently as a company to make that guideline clearer or that sort of value clearer. So um, it's it's challenging, it's hard, but I don't think it's any extra challenging hard than what I hear, particularly from large companies. You know, my friends with startups, as soon as they get on two floors of a building, they're having these problems where like, it's hard to get everyone in the same room. How do you get everyone on the same page? And not to get to the point with something like a Google with 150 offices around the world or 150 buildings around the world. Uh, so. These are our challenges, I think, at scale, but they're very surmountable. And the best practices, like if you read like an old book, like a Andy Grove book or a Peter Drucker book, one of my all-time favorite people, um, you know, you can just apply it. He's talking about companies and factories and things like that, but you can take the principles and apply them to people working online as well. The hard parts are humans, not the uh, the technology which which we use to communicate. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. So you know, you know, I think the as companies are 
moving online, becoming more distributed, uh, the, the, this this becomes a major challenge. Uh, you know, when <clears throat> I think when you're interacting physically with people, you can see the facial expressions and you can uh, see the intent. Right? It's, uh, you're absolutely right that uh, <laughs> you know it, it it becomes a bit challenging to read asynchronously what someone meant or what someone uh, is trying to convey. Uh, so I think that these are great ideas. Tell you my wish that I wish we had. <laughs> um, asynchronous audio. There's yeah. so much. Like, let's say you and I were typing to each other or texting, and we were just kind of like riling each other up. A best practice say, hey, um, let's, let's just hop on a quick call. <laughs> just here's my number, give me a call. And probably within a minute of talking, we'd understand each other a lot better and also de-escalate. Yeah. Um, now, I would love a way... Every, by the way, WhatsApp, Telegram, all the, every messaging app has this, but Slack does not. You just send you like a little 30-second voice recording that you could listen to, or maybe even a video recording where I'm like, hey, you know, it's really important to me that this client hears back within, you know, the four-hour SLA because, you know, they're, they're really key. We're using as an example. We have a case study with them. Like, I really want them to be happy. Um, and then I can express that in a way that if I typed those exact same words out, might feel a bit more aggressive or more terse or something. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions, such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Experfy differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Experfy Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Expropy platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.expropy.com for more information. So you've mentioned in a blog post that open source is future of technology and innovation. So can you perhaps tell us a bit more about your thesis? Yeah, so first let me define open source as being software that you can see exactly how it works, you can modify how it works, and you can use it for any purpose you like. Now, what business or developer would not want that? (laughs) Who says, I want software that's a black box that I'm just stuck with how someone tells me to use it. And if they change their mind on my ability to use it, um, you know, up a creek. I'd have no control over it. By the way, that could change their pricing. That could shut things down like Google did with Google Reader or many, many other products. Like when you rely on these things, even from a business continuity point of view, I think it's it's shocking to me that people are adopting proprietary software in 2020. Um, The good news is they're using more open source than ever. Um, now, from a, from a development point of view, another reason it's good to bet on open source is there's a flywheel that happens. So uh, imagine what happened with Encyclopedia Britannica versus Wikipedia, right? The Wikipedia was worse <laughs> for a while, but there was a flywheel that, that developed, but because it was totally open, it got more visitors, which meant more people editing it, which meant the knowledge got better and better. And within a few years, it actually passed up the quality. I don't know if you saw the studies. I mean, Britannica's gone, so they can't do it now. But there were actually studies like comparing articles on Encyclopedia Britannica, created by experts by a company with millions of dollars, versus 
this Wikipedia thing, and the Wikipedia eventually got better. The same thing happens with software. So uh, WordPress, when it started, was the worst one out there. <laughs> it was not better than any of the competitors. Certainly the ones that, you know, our competitors had 200 employees, full-time, professionals, etc. What happened was we just kept iterating, and more and more people used WordPress, which meant more and more people were working on it, and it just got better and better and better. So another cool hack about open source is it gets competitors working together. So, um, you know, GoDaddy uses WordPress. We use WordPress. The New York Times uses WordPress. Washington Post uses WordPress. All these companies that Facebook uses WordPress, Microsoft uses WordPress, right? They all use it and contribute to it, whether explicitly, like Google actually employs people to work and contribute to WordPress, or just implicitly through using it and finding bugs or creating documentation or teaching people how to use it. So it's kind of like a, uh, you've heard of the tragedy of the commons. You get almost like an abundance of the commons where everyone is contributing to the shared resource and saying, we're not gonna compete with this one thing. We'll compete with the things built on top of it. But for this thing, we're just gonna like make it better. And I think that's the future of technology, the future of humanity. Like imagine how much um, wasted duplication of effort there is just in code. So every single city that builds their own mobile app that lets you take a picture of the pothole, right? How many cities are there in the world? Tens of thousands. How many of them have that? Probably thousands. They've rebuilt that wheel over and over again. What if there was an open source thing they could just change the name of the city, you know, search and replace San Francisco with Chicago and have this exact same like app for reporting potholes. Um, this is a real example, by the way. San Francisco open sourced their app for doing this and a bunch of other cities have been adopting it. So how much is that saving? No, that's that's very interesting. Yeah. So, so um, obviously, companies have to when they begin writing software, they have to think about okay, should I make this open source or should I, uh, you know, make it proprietary? And um, many companies decide to do a proprietary write of their software. So, um, from from your vantage point, when you know, having done what you've done with the automatic was, uh, you know, uh, obviously you had such advantages that you, you were able to achieve scale because of open source. But do you think that if it were proprietary, there would have been some uh, positives? WordPress would not be WordPress if it were proprietary. We wouldn't be having this conversation. Okay. Um, proprietary is something you could choose on purpose. Um, we have an anti-spam uh, service. Right, that you can ping and say, is this spam or not? And it answers yes or no. That's actually proprietary. We just don't want the spammers to know how it works. <laughs> because they'd work around it. So there's some things that you could choose to do proprietary, and we even do. But I would say if you're making that decision, maybe it could work if you're in a really small niche that there's not already an open source alternative to, um, or if the open source project doesn't have momentum. But if it does, I would say far better to contribute to and build on top of that open source and then create something unique on top of it. And you can do that to the tune of like tens or hundreds of billions of dollars. You know, most modern tech companies like, look at a Samsung, it doesn't make an operating system, they use Android, which is open source. Uh, there's so many examples of that. It's almost like it, you touch open source dozens of times every day in your life, even if you don't know it. And every one of those companies is able to create a better product because they use that shared foundation and then build something cool on top of it rather than reinventing that lower stack. Much like we don't try to like 
reinvent all of physics when we're building a nuclear reactor. Like we did take what's already been figured out and like build something cool on top of it. Yeah. So when, when we think of future work, uh, talent is central to the enterprise and you've, you've already touched upon hiring the best talent. Uh, given you are hiring in different locales for different positions, how, how do you, how do you uh, engage in this process? Well, what does the hiring process look like for you? You know, the first and most important thing to improve your quality of people we hire is to look at a wider pool, right? Uh, if you are able to access more of the world's talent, you will be able to hire better people. And where are you located right now? I'm in Boston. You're in Boston. I'm in San Francisco, but I used to be in Texas, by the way, not a place people look for many <laughs> software engineers, but there's some darn good ones. Um, you're in Boston. Uh, there's just all over the world, there's incredible talent because maybe 100 years ago, when access to information or education was a, a big barrier, it made sense to hire in just in Boston because you had such amazing universities there. I think some of the best universities in the world in, in Titus Collection. But guess what? Like if you're building the web, <laughs> all that information is available online and someone in another country can learn it just as well as the person who happens to be in Boston or even the person that went to MIT, you know, which is kind of incredible. This democratization of access to education and information. People are limited a lot more by their motivation than by their um, access to the education. Um, so first and foremost, widest pool possible. What we do, and there's actually an HBR article about this. So if you Google Harvard Business Review and then my last name, which is Mullenweg, um, you'll see how our hiring process is. What we try to do is stimulate the real work as much as possible. Because when we started hiring from all over the world, we weren't able to use the normal signals that maybe help you filter people who are good. Right? I don't know what the best, you know, university in India is, <laughs> or the, the best one in Croatia, or something like that. So I don't know what the Harvard of Croatia is. I don't know how to look for that and say, oh, maybe this person is someone we should put to the top. So all we try to filter for in the resumes is essentially writing quality. You know, how how well is it written? And then after that, we try to do a project with the person. It starts off with a very simple project. You know, in programming, it's often called FizzBuzz, like. Essentially, like, can you code or not? It's a very, very simple, it takes people, you know, under half an hour, sometimes less to do this. That's just like an easy first filter. Then we'll do, you know, we'll talk to them. It happens all in text. And then if they seem um, like passionate about our area, like someone who'd be a good fit for the company, we do a bigger project. That typically will take between 20 and 40 hours. We actually pay people for this. So we pay them as a contractor, fixed $25 an hour rate. And, um, do something that looks like what they're going to do on the job. If they're customer support, they'll be talking to customers, real customers, by the way. They're a designer, they're designing things. If they're a programmer, they're programming things. It's a little trickier for executives, like if they're a CFO, <laughs> how do you have them CFO things? But uh, for the large part, especially for where we have the bulk of our people, it's very, very easy to recreate the work. And then we just look at how they do, how they communicate, how they do the work. And that sort of recreates what is in traditional companies a really good source of people, which is referrals, <laughs> you know? I would say, hey, who's the best person you've worked with in the past 10 years, the best five people? And I'd say, okay, let's go find them. The downsides of that, I'm only looking to the people who you've worked with, which by the way, isn't great for like creating more diversity in your workplace and things like that. So if you just say, hey, well, let's allow almost anyone to come through the door, give them a chance to do a little bit of work and hire the ones who are able to do it. Do it. 
you create an equality of opportunity that I think is really, really powerful for the world. I, you know, I want every company to hire like this because it'll be, there's so many smart and talented people who just haven't had access to like the educational opportunities that you and I have, or the, the credentialing, more traditional credentialing. And uh, if we could get them access, what would that do for the economy? Any parting words for our audience? You know, what do you think the biggest challenge your audience has is? I think uh, everyone's trying to deal with the pandemic and trying to see how they are changing their processes, right? Mm -hmm. the, the processes are changing, how their work is changing, and, uh, and they're trying to figure out how to optimize the things they're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, that's a tough one. <laughs> I had an answer for that. I'd be telling the world how to deal with the pandemic. It does remind me of two things, though. Um, I'll harken back to earlier where I said assume positive intents. I think this is a time when we need a lot of compassion for each other. You know, it, uh, both public and private struggles people are going through dealing with this pandemic around, well, first and foremost, people getting sick, of course, but also childcare, the psychological stress of being locked down or being home, unable to see your family or friends. Like, that's huge. And um, we've definitely seen it internally where we're just recovering for each other a lot more, you know? I would say we're probably operating at 80% effectiveness right now at, at most. The second is, you know, to be a bit more optimistic, I think this is Churchill said this, but maybe it's apocryphal, is that, you know, don't, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Um, this is an opportunity to reimagine things that you've done by default for a long time or just did it that way today because that's how you did it yesterday. We've all been forced out of this... Um, out of our daily routines. Um, I see a lot of companies that are moving online try to recreate what they did offline online, and that's not working. You can't be on eight hours of Zoom every day. It's gonna, it's gonna burn everyone out. So how can you reimagine the way you're collaborating, working uh, for the same or better outcomes? And we didn't talk about it, but I think managing by those outcomes is huge. You know, the, the coach doesn't tell the basketball player, I want you to dribble eight times per second. <laughs> it says, score the goal, <laughs> you know? Um, and that, type of uh, management, I think, could be really powerful, too. Great, Matt. This has been uh, wonderful. So thank you so much for taking the time. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast and also tell your colleagues and friends about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for a new episode with yet another pioneer shaping the future of work.